Hey everyone, quick note that the sound quality is a little off for this episode. We recorded live, so there's more background noise than usual, and because of fallen humanity, I used the wrong mic on my end, so the balance isn't ideal. But we had a great time answering your questions, and we hope that even if the sound's a little off, you still enjoy the show. Thanks. Listeners, we'd like to thank our supporters on Patreon. That is Matt, Nick, Justin, Teddy, Paul, Grace, and Annalise. Thank you for your financial contributions. We are using them for podcasting software and other exciting things. Like tacos and wings. If you've got $5 or more a month to spare and would like to help us do stuff like make some merch, get some headshots, buy some ads. Start our own record label. Create beer. (laughs) Invest in indie wrestling companies. Invest in indie wrestling companies is right. That's a good idea. any of those things you can join our supporters over at patreon.com slash wtiap you also get access to the patreon only podcast that ian and i record pillow talk where we complain about being old but in a delightful way if you're not in a position to support us financially there are still ways you can help us out you can subscribe to us on the podcasting app of your choice you can rate and review us on apple podcasts share us on the social media platform of your choice or follow us on twitter or facebook the discourse has been great this week or just keep listening that's good too and now here's the show one two five nine Father, preacher servant leader rector reverend deacon elder what the hell welcome to what the hell is a pastor a podcast about life in set apart ministry Each week, we draw on our experiences and challenges as current and former pastors to figure out what the hell it is that pastors do and how to do it as best we can. Listeners, today we've got a very special episode. We're full of tacos and wings, and we are live in Charlottesville. The very socially distanced audience, Barack Obama has nothing on us. We're very responsible. But to celebrate the fact that This show has made it to three seasons, made it past 200 episodes. We've collected some questions from the internets, from the socials, from the 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 passenger pigeons if you will and Ian here is going to be in charge of asking these questions because uh, we need more people on Patreon to afford better uh, guest hosts. So we're gonna get this going. The question number one which is coming from Patrick on Facebook, and it's for both of you. A nice, gentle one to get the ball rolling. What would your ideal church be? I don't have one. My ideal church is the church I'm serving right now. <laughs> Actually, in all honesty, I, I, I've come to really like uh, kind of low-maintenance, small, you know, churches. Just in the just a, almost two months of me doing this, and so it's not that bad. Um, but I would say, like, if I wasn't going to do this, a church that I could be a part of a team would be would be good. Like, if it's going to be a big church or, or a church that's over 150 people, which I would consider a massive church <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, um, I would, I would want to be able to be a part of a church with a good staff. And so an ideal church would be a church with a team of leaders, both lay leaders and paid staff leaders and whatever that I could trust what they are doing, what, what the church itself is doing doesn't really bother me all that much. Mostly because the church is bad at everything it does. That's true. And so like if, if it was just 
if if the only thing it did was roast beef dinners and then Bible study sometimes, I'd be like, okay. But if they went on protests, I'd be like, okay. Just, you know, the protests and political activism is probably as skillful as the roast beef suppers would be. For churches are are notoriously incompetent. Joe? Yeah. Yeah, I hate church. I really I thought I like I saw all these questions. I should have an answer. I uh I mean that was <laughs> nothing. <laughs> I have nothing. <laughs> <clears throat> well, I mean, that was uh, the lightest question from Patrick. It was, actually. Um, okay. Is the local church obsolete? Also from Patrick on Facebook. Yes. It depends on what, I guess, the local church is supposed to be doing. Like, if the local church, if the local church is supposed to be a place where, um, you know, kind of authentic Christian community and, and all I mean by that is uh, Christians who are are really doing their best to be Christians, even if their best is not very good, or even if if it's Christians in a sort of a, a narrow sense, right? Then uh, no, I would say the local church is far from obsolete. Now I think I think things like mega churches and and I actually am warming up a little bit to multi-site churches because I think there's a way you can do that very well without um kind of kind of collapsing into the mega church celebrity pastor problem because you know if if the multiple campuses sort of function as these local communities then then it's basically just another form of denominationalism but but in a maybe just a more concentrated way which is which is also not that big of a deal I don't think um, but like, I think that if a local church is, is doing that, then I think that's really the only way Christian community, uh, can function in that way. Right. Like, I think there are all kinds of ways of doing like really good, like kingdom of God work outside of the local church. Yeah. But, you know, as far as, you know, being Christians, worshiping you know, Christ on a Sunday or on some day of the week, trying to do Bible study, trying to practice their faith, trying to be good Christians together. I think the local churches primarily were that happens. Yeah, I think you're right on that. I think um, the local church as the social club, the local church is like the place of influence in the community. Um, the local church as like... I don't want to necessarily like say the the foundational like piece of Methodist polity because I think it's that's totally true. But I think a local church who is just trying to have a hundred people getting together on a Sunday to do things, um, yeah, I don't see the the local church going back to pre-pandemic levels. But I also do think that like these small small groups of Christians trying to be Christians together is like really the the most functional way that we can we can trying to practice our religion together at the same time i think like the local churches that exist in the united methodist church are all it, it, I, I don't think that there are i and this is probably just because most of my experiences with other people recently out of seminary who are not sent to the world's most healthy churches unless you know somebody who knows somebody um but sorry that was that was vicious and bitter <laughs> but yeah i i think that for in a lot of cases 
these churches that were made as like community centers um, really aren't going to continue to function exactly like that in the future. And so I think it's obsolete in that way. But I also think that like that the the most enduring expressions of discipleship we're going to see are going to be these kind of local communities. Uh, you started to touch on this one, uh, and I promise we're going to get to a fun one soon, listeners. One that isn't so sad. Uh, <laughs> but uh, also from Patrick, given all that is UMC, uh, would you two both uh, still consider yourselves Methodists? Specifically, how do y'all feel about that Methodist polity? Oh, that's, that's a tough I, so I, just to jump in, I still consider myself a Methodist, but I don't know that that means that I am a, um, ever really going to be excited about being a functioning member of the United Methodist denomination anytime soon. Like, I, I think that I really enjoy historical Methodism and John Wesley and Charles Wesley. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot that's Methodist about me, and I think there are aspects of the polity that I'm happy with, um, but like... Do I love the United Methodist nomination? I'm, like I'm still, I'm still not really excited about it. Yeah, I, I almost entirely agree. Like that's just about where I'm at too. Like I, I don't think I could be something other than a Methodist. Just, just I'm too shaped by, by the Wesleys, and I'm too shaped by, um, a honestly, I'm too shaped by like a by like a really clear polity. Yeah. To to kind of make a turn towards something different. So like if I was going to I don't think I could be a, a pastor in another sort of formal denomination. I really don't think I could. I, I certainly can't I certainly can't like think and function as a confessing Christian within another tradition. Like I'm just too formed by that. Like yeah. eventually I'd be like, but what about holiness? Or like but what about but what about you know social and personal piety like what about you know what about all of these things that that I've learned from the Wesleys and if I was to ever be a part of a formal denomination that was just like eh it's just not that big of a deal I just I would feel weird um I could see myself functioning as a pastor in in a sort of an informal like you know I guess a non-denominational setting but not really an evangelical setting um, but, but if I'm going to function in like a system, I'm just too formed by a Methodist, you know, polity and a Methodist connectionalism and, and all of that. Now, I think that the United Methodist polity, while I like a lot of it, um, I think it's by and large, you know, sort of non-functional right now. Yeah. And I think it's been non-functional since at least 2016. Um, when, when at general conference everybody just said oh well we don't trust the polity anymore to arrive at a at a decision right but uh but yeah it's, that, that's how i would answer that yeah and i think um gosh what do i like about polity i like the connectionalism um i just think that's really crucial um I think that's I think that's also just like the only way that we go forward is together, and I think if we were to lean into that, um, that that world would be a better place. Um, functional connectionalism, not necessarily connectionalism as it as it currently functions, though. Um, and and I do like I honestly like the itinerancy the itinerant system, um, but I also think that we gotta uh, that 
being more thoughtful about it would be good. I, yeah, I, I, mean, I honestly like the idea of the bishop placing pastors and and the checks and balances that should be there. Again, if it were being completely used in, in a really healthy way and in a thoughtful way. Um, I, I, I like a good committee meeting, you know? <laughs> I, can't, I can't get away from that. But yeah, I think, not to say there isn't holiness and, and personal and social holiness in other traditions in their own way, but like, so much of Wesleyan theology is what I think, is what I believe, uh, is where I fit. That this, I mean, this was after the 2019 General Conference, and everybody was trying to poach us to other denominations. And I'm like, well, this is still what I what I believe and how I how I practice, um, and I'm not ready to give up on it yet. So, at the same time, I think it's gonna probably be a while before there's a uh, an expression of Methodism that I am that I want to buy into. But, uh, it's fair. It's fair. Uh, my therapist asks me that question all the time, and uh, <laughs> my spiritual director asks me that question all the time. <laughs> he still uh, can't wrap my head around him. Uh, he's also Episcopalian. <laughs> uh, this is from Grace. Uh, what are your favorite breakfast cereals? <laughs> Ethan doesn't eat breakfast. That's what I'm getting from that. I don't actually. I, you know, I on a like an everyday level love a good Rice Krispie. Um, in terms of like what I would eat all the time, though, Captain Crunch. So when Ian came home from the store with Rice Krispies and Captain Crunch, I'm like, I've made it. This is the this is the place to be. <laughs> nothing, nothing from Ethan. This one is for you, Ethan. Then, uh, but uh, former Pastor Nick, a uh, friend of the pod, wants to know what is the best Yu-Gi-Oh card slash strategy. The best Yu-Gi-Oh card slash strategy. So I haven't been in the Yu-Gi-Oh game for a while. I, I was an addict for for a time in middle school. Um, I, I once defeated Jory in a really spectacular way by by forcing Jory to to deal a crap ton of damage to me, and then which triggered a trap card that caused him to uh, remove from the game all of his like permanents, like all of his like creature cards. And so, like, I, I, I sabotaged him, and I've never felt more powerful in my entire <laughs> life, if I was really honest with you. Um, like, sex is cool, but have you, ever, have you ever defeated one of your best friends in a duel, in a Yu-Gi-Oh duel, in a spectacular way? I mean, that's really what it comes down to. So, Nick, that's what I would say. I would say uh, the best Yu-Gi-Oh strategy is to force your opponent to kill himself. <laughs> <laughs> That's a that's a good strategy. That is how uh, my brother beat me in a Yu-Gi-Oh tournament, uh, which I'm not bitter about. Um, Fifteen years later, this is from your better half, Ethan. Beth uh, wants to know why aren't there more short hymns? And for the short ones, why do we have to sing them twice? <laughs> so, listeners, you have to understand that my wife hates hymns. Um, she does not like them. And I like them. Like, like that's I'm. I prefer him singing. I think it's fun. I think it's fine. I like a lot of lyrics. Good theology, particularly if Charles Wesley wrote it. Um, the short hymns. It's all about. It's all about uh, timing, right? Like you want to hit the sweet spot with the congregation where they like understand how the song goes, and then like once they pick it up. The, then they'll, you know, the second time we sing the short hymn, 
is supposed to be a little more confident, right? Like, yeah. oh, we've sung it right the first time, now we're going to sing it again, and we've got it. Um, I actually think a lot of my favorite hymns I would consider to be relatively short. It's just that a lot of them also have a lot of verses. So like, um, Oh, 4,000 Tongues to Sing is ultimately a pretty short hymn, but it's got uh, uh, six really great verses and one really terrible verse that we often cut out because Charles Wesley, you know, goes full ableist weirdo, you know, in that, in that, lat, in that uh, verse six. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. Um, but uh, but yeah, that there. That's why we sing the really really short hymns twice. And um, Beth, if you want to pick the hymns from now on, feel free because I have to pick the hymns right now, and it's literally my least favorite thing in the world to do. Oh really? I love it. Oh, I hate I it. it. I I hate it. I hate. It. I love designing worship. It, like one of my favorite things brings me joy all the time. I love I love scouring the hymnal for the things that I want. I love it every once in a while when a song outside of the United Methodist hymn books comes into my purview and I'm like that that is a song that I need I'm going to use it like I think they're all great there's no hymn too long for me that's not true there are hymns that are played entirely too slow and then singing them makes them way too long but like man I will sit through we were just talking before about um like traditional services for our Easter vigil I will sit through a three-hour Easter vigil service if it means I get to sing all the hymns I want to sing like I do not mind at all but I also get it there are if you if you do not like congregational singing then like this is a torturous part of the service and like my dad can't stand very well and also does not sing above a whisper so my dad hates hymns too i feel it sure sure uh you, this question was not asked by my wife but the best hymn in the united methodist hymn book other than lord of the dance because it's very funny <laughs> um, That's true. i hate lord of the dance yeah, it's, it's just fun though it's just good fun is uh uh come thou long expected jesus um one ninety six. Uh, it we could sing that song every Sunday, and I'd be very content. It 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 sums up pretty much my entire theology of the incarnation in two succinct verses. And so, come that long expected Jesus, Charles Wesley, boom. Yeah, I uh, we already mentioned over a thousand, so I don't have a. I have so many thoughts on favorite hymns, but that's not what this podcast is. Next next question and answer session, we'll do favorite <laughs> hymns. Um gonna do a quick plug though for uh, our patreon because we talked about favorite hymns in an episode of pillow talk we so did. uh subscribe uh pay five dollars a month to get pillow talk and uh you can hear that conversation between ian and joe as we uh, not only talk about the the hymns we like but also sing a few of them um in in just not a great scene posture um oh. it was great yeah, that's that's why I love key my posture. Yeah, yeah. How how is it how is it singing through a pillow? I assume <laughs> I assume that's how pillow talk goes, but I don't know that for sure. Yeah. yeah, it's it's really muffled. That's how we keep our chastity intact with the pillow. <laughs> yep. Uh, Joe, this one is for you from uh, Nick. Uh, he wants to know if science, why God? I, so we listeners we assorted these questions into silly questions and serious questions and i thought that put this in the it could go either way category uh so i didn't, I didn't really expect it if science why god is that the question um so there's so much wrong with the premise of this question i don't even know where to start nick i'm just kidding that's not that's not helpful what a great question what a helpful thing to think through um i think 
The thing is that uh, God can be revealed through science if you're in the right state of mind with science. And so the question is not like, if science, why God? But if science, sure, God. That's fine. That's, it doesn't have to be a problem. And, and also, like, Nick, are you caught up on the podcast? We talked about this. We talked about the provability of God just recently. Go back. I'll put it in the show notes for you. Sorry, this was assy. This is a great question, Nick. I know you didn't mean it. Anyway, next question. Nick always has the good, curious questions. Uh, this question is from Jeff. What's the most frustrating tendency in lay biblical exegesis you've encountered? And what's frustrating, and what's the most frustrating in clergy or professional theologians? Uh, and the answer can't be literalism. That's a, that's a really good question. Isn't a great question? I like that question. That is a good question. I, I will say, I have seen this question. I'm going to let Ethan think for a minute because I saw it before Ian just asked it. Um, so I think with laity... The thing that frustrates me the most is conspiratorial thinking. So, like, yeah. taking the Bible and saying, if we put this piece together and this piece together, then we will get the exact date of the, the end time. Or, um, or that this is exactly why this person should be elected or this thing should happen. Like, using the Bible to fuel your conspiracies really, really irritates me. But that's also, in a lot of cases, not the laity's fault. Like, they have been taught to look for signs of Jesus throughout the Hebrew scriptures. And, like, that's on professional theologians who have been like, and you can see here in Isaiah, they basically spell out Jesus's name, you know? Like, that's that's kind of on us. But that's what I would say for laity. Yeah, that's... Yeah, I would, I would agree... I would agree with that. I, I think that how I would describe it is, you know, I've I've had experiences with lay with lay biblical exegesis where, um, they're they're really quick to make a passage make sense to them by leaning on stuff they already believe. Yeah. So so which which is essentially I think what you're what you're describing. I I. Conspiratorial thinking is a good way to put it too, but like, so like when we read the Psalms, rather than, you know, I've had experience with laity where, where rather than um, admitting that this Psalm doesn't really have anything to do with God's love or God's grace or God's whatever, but but instead has to do with people who you know, no God who are really hurt or really pissed off or, or um, traumatized or who are really happy, but, but who have a totally different worldview of how this all kind of took place. Yeah. And so perhaps the best way I can describe it is I get frustrated with lay folks when they try to make the Bible less strange. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, because there's a ton of strange things there, right? All throughout it. The Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. And and when they rush to make it less strange and, and instead to make it uh, basic instructions before leaving Earth, right? right yeah. when, when they want it to be that, that's really frustrating for me. Uh, now, the second part of the question, it's funny. I actually get, I get frustrated with theologians and scholars when they do the opposite yeah i i get i get frustrated when theologians and scholars don't make the bible work for like the truth that they're trying to say 
what I mean by that is um, I get frustrated with with folks who work under the assumption that the that the best way to use the Bible is through this sort of historical critical method, or the best way to use the Bible is through this sort of science scientific. I'm going to say secular, and all I mean by that is we read the Bible as we would read any piece of literature. Yeah. Uh, and 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 I think it keeps some theologians from from saying really daring and really good things, right? Like, it doesn't mean that I think I get frustrated when theologians lock themselves into a conservative or classically orthodox biblical interpretation. What I mean is, like, like so like Moltmann. I remember sitting in a class with Kendall Solem on suffering, on, like, God and the gospel and suffering, and somebody asking Kendall why we aren't reading any Moltmann. In that class, because he didn't assign any Moltmann in the class. And Moltmann, you know, is listeners, if you don't know by now, the suffering of God is sort of Moltmann's thing, you know? Yeah. And and the Kendall's reason, Dr. Solon's reason for why we weren't reading Moltmann is that Molt is that Kendall was like, Moltmann's biblical exegesis is wrong. Yeah. Um, and it is from a historical critical method. Like the way Moltmann reads some of the passion narratives and, and in the Gospels and stuff like that, um, a biblical scholar would probably quickly say to Moltmann, or has quickly said to Moltmann, uh, no, that's just not what's happening here. That's just not what's happening here. However, even though I disagree with Moltmann on other things, like if Moltmann wouldn't have read those texts in that way, he wouldn't have written the crucified God. Yeah, you know, like like there's some daring things that he as a theologian is able to do that has produced really good fruit, even if I think there are better books. Like the good fruit, I think matters more at times for theologians than um, the 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 kind of reading the Bible correctly, quote unquote, from from that perspective. Yeah, I think I've really shifted on this since seminary. Because I, I remember being in seminary and, and like even after seminary and thinking like there are so many dangerous ways to read the Bible. And when we read the Bible in these dangerous ways, we produce this terrible theology. So what we must, what we first must get right is our uh, hermeneutics and then that'll fix all the other problems. Um, and I've come to think that it's a much more porous barrier uh, that, that, that you can never investigate your embedded theology deeply enough to have a perfect hermeneutic, nor will having a great hermeneutic, I, an accurate hermeneutic, completely fix your theology. Like, I, I think that um, there's much more interplay, and, and you have to grow in both sectors. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think where, where I get frustrated with professional theologians... Um, or scholars is when they say something uh, and like this I guess this is just like the aspect an aspect of academic writing but they say something about the Bible about their reading of the Bible as if it this this thing was not contested and it's something that like there's a ton of debate about yeah. and I'm, I'm like reaching for an example and I don't have one right now but anytime somebody wants to be like the Bible definitely says this I'm like well then we're not reading the same Bible because the Bible does there's a lot of debate about God, every word in that book so yeah I, I think to like some of my frustration with biblical exegesis in general 
it's uh, whenever it's lazy, whenever like you're like, well, the Bible clearly just says this, um, without either like explaining why you think it's very clear that the Bible says this. Then again, the Bible very clearly says that like the love of money is the root of all evil, and like I don't really want to debate that one. So, but then like I'm also very honest about the the socialism that I like to live in. So yes. Good answers. Good answers. Good question. Um, don't know how I feel about this question, but this question comes from Aaron, and Aaron wants to know your opinion of uh, churches that pay some employees, secretaries, nursery workers, custodians, etc., below a living wage, while giving the senior pastors very large salaries with huge benefits package. Uh, so what do we think of that, and uh, how can we fix that? What do you mean you don't know how you feel about this question? Oh, it's just a very easy answer. Those churches are trash. Oh, I was like, <laughs> I thought that you were going to be like, this is controversial. <laughs> no, so this is from uh, my friend Aaron, who just had a baby, congrats, yay. Um, but who has worked as a secretary at churches and was not paid a living wage at these churches. Um, and like... Yeah, like I, even in the book of, like, I think it's in the res, book of resolutions, I don't know that it's in the discipline, but like, we're committed to like, living wage, etc. And the, it's not what we're doing. I, so this, this kind of goes back to the, are the local churches obsolete question? Because I think, I, I again, I'm sure there's mega churches that are not paying their staff what they need to be paid. But um, I think with the local church, like, we pay the person who would clean our church 60 bucks a week should have paid her more um but like she was kind of doing this also as a volunteer thing and we paid her as a like a small thank you each time she did it more or less and so i think for for smaller churches where somebody is doing this not as a means of sustaining their lives but as a like i'm here 10 hours a week to print the bulletins and help out with stuff like that's a different question but if you have a, a full-time staff member and you're not providing for them what are you doing yeah i agree i agree um i i'm prepared to side more for on ian which joe you're doing as well like I think that those churches are trash, particularly when you when you arrive at, you know, such a disparity, right? Like the senior pastor is is making all kinds of money, you know, with benefits, and then everyone below the senior pastor is just not it's not even comparable, you know. Yeah. That kind of stuff is, is, is very bad. At the same time, like like so like the the thing that I do, you know, in, in the, the churches that I've served is I really, I want to know what, if there is a staff, I want to know what they're making and I want to know, you know, what they're doing so that they're not, I'm not asking them to do more than, you know, you know, X thing that they're supposed to be doing. Like the, the office administrator of the charge I'm serving is ultimately making just a little bit of money. She, she's basically quarter time. Um, and so I make it really, you know, and I've told her this and I've said this to some other folks too. The only time you can ask her to do things is when she is office hours. This is when she's in the office. Do not call her. You got to call somebody, call me. Like, don't call her and ask her to do things when she's not in the office. Because she's not full time. You know, she's not like, like, 
she's not getting anything other than um the money it takes for her to drive here and a little bit more like and that's it like so yeah. you know a lot of times churches i think churches often need office administrators and they often cannot pay office administrators a lot of money and so how you get a it's not that how you get around it it's how you make that just is by honoring um as fully as possible the time commitment that that they can and should be making yeah. you know and then not asking for more that would be wrong like um yeah that's how, that's what i would add yeah and i i think like the the really like the mid-sized church where the pastor is somehow making a six-figure salary and then you have a full-time office administrator who is making 32k a year like that's a situation where you just reallocate salary it's ridiculous that your pastor is making that much money why are you doing that um yeah yeah we're we're all kind of on on the right page about this i think i think the only situation in which a question like this is tricky is the situation where you have somebody working part-time at a church that honestly really shouldn't be paying a full-time pastor either like I, but I think that opens up like deeper, deeper questions about um, what churches are and what churches are for and um, I, you know like the more I think about it the more I want church to be just a completely volunteer thing because I think but then I also think that like for what clergy put into it or what like a full time staff person puts into it like that person deserves to be completely paid for the job they're doing but then yeah but then we go into this question of smallness and like how much how much does a, a salary like do we just need to be bivocational and is is that really what it should be I like I that's where I think the real thorniness of the question is is like how do we see the clergy class and then from the clergy class how do we see people who are doing professional Christian things but then churches are essentially a nonprofit, and uh, they should be paying their people as nonprofits. Uh, well, all nonprofits should probably pay their people better. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, lots of problems with that nonprofit industrial complex. Yeah. Um, and like you, uh, I think a lot of it also comes down to the lay members who like want to pay their pastor a lot of money and then are like, oh yeah, we have the janitor. Oh, uh, here's a love offering. Yeah, and like, and what do they cut first, though? They do not cut the pastor salary. They cut the janitor salary, and the janitor is already not making a lot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's bananas. <clears throat> um, Aaron also wants to know, uh, what do you think the ideal sermon length is? I like a cool 12 and a half minutes. Agreed. <laughs> Short, sweet, and to the point. Question from uh, Grace about our feline friends. I, before you ask, before you ask a cat question, let's spend more time talking about sermon length. Why? I, I just feel like maybe we should explain why we say 12 and a half minutes. 12 and a half, nobody wants to sit longer than 12 and a half minutes to hear one person talk. I think great. that's, yeah, that's the amount of time that you can express one clear idea and each sermon should be expressing one clear idea. When you're going much longer than that. No, Why'd you laugh at me? I'm just laughing that you're still answering this question. This is the easiest question so far. <laughs> also, I don't like cats. 
next question. <laughs> question is about cats. What's what's Grace's? Aaron, that's a great question. I know that you grew up Baptist, and and you probably have a lot of thoughts about it. But the answer is twelve and a half minutes. You asked us on our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you come into our house. <laughs> I like twenty minutes, but that's me. Yeah, you do. Um, Grace wants to know. Uh, I think this one is for Joe. Uh, if cats don't like being held like babies, why did God make them the same size as babies? Grace, you asked so many questions about cats and their sizes. <laughs> and the correct answer is God did not do any of this. <laughs> like, so what I, what I think is that to, to loop back in Nick's question from earlier, um, what I think... Uh, is at the root of this is like the question of what God does in creation really like that's the same thing of the if science why God question uh, and why are cats the size they are I mean like I think cats domesticated their, themselves I think is what scholars are saying now but like the answer of the size of cats is domestication God made these things to be giant and to eat us and instead we invited them into our houses and they shrunk as with dogs so like the like the the question of like why are there cats that we can hold like babies and why don't they like it well they don't like it because they were once lions and they're upset about it um but like why god well god didn't god i did say your theology however the way you want to but like this is an evolution thing and a human interaction thing and the deeper question we need to be asking is how are we functioning as like capstone species instead of um why did God make cats like this? Because yeah, that's not what happened. You might as well ask, like, why did God make chihuahuas? And like, no, that abomination is all on us. That's humanity. That's sin. Well, well, you know what? I and this is this is an area in which Joe and I, I, I guess, disagree. I have an opinion that about some of this that like I hold very loosely. I mostly it's because I think human beings are a part of the natural order, and I think that we can partially agree with that, if not fully agree with that, then I think every single thing humans do is perfectly natural. Um, oh, we're talking about chihuahuas. Okay. <laughs> right, well, we're talking about all of it, right? So, like, this is... Sorry for this quick detour. Like, I, I, dislike, I dislike things... It's not even that I dislike it, because it's not like I disagree. Of course, I think that when human beings do things that are bad, bad things happen to nature and to creation. I, I agree with that fully. However, I think that that way of talking um, is is an element to a lot of is is anathema to a lot of scientific discourse that wants to talk about like nature, right? Like, be this is I think an element in which like a Christian theological perspective does not work with with many, certainly not all, but like many ways in which scientific discourse talks about the natural world and talks about, you know, people and, and, and other species and things like that. Like, if human beings are a natural phenomenon and we are animals, then the things we do are just as natural as what any other animals do. And so the moment a human being does something that is bad for nature, I, I just have to say, well, that's a completely different way of talking. We're now in a moral non-natural way of talking like like in other words and i would never make this argument because of course i'm against climate change but climate change is a perfectly natural phenomenon if it's particularly if it's human beings doing it 
And so the moral discourse uh, that's paired with the scientific discourse of like something like climate change, I think is is unexamined. And I think that's also part of the reason why there's some confusion and some people who don't really know what to know how to interact and talk about climate change and how to be mobilized for for combating climate change and things yeah. like that. But I think it's connected to the to what Joe is saying about you know cats and chihuahuas and and, and stuff <laughs> like that, right? Like you know the, na- naturally they're supposed to be lions. No, naturally they're supposed to be whatever the fuck we make them <laughs> is actually the answer. Bye. Unless human beings are aliens that aren't a part of nature, like then then everything is perfectly natural. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. Um, you're right. I think I think a lot of our, um, a lot of the ways that we do harm to other species on the planet uh, come from not understanding that we are a part of the same natural cycles as the species on the planet. Uh, like I think you're exactly right with that, and and that kind of goes back to the root of the question: is like, I, I, the. The idea that God made a cat to be this way, why is the cat like this, um, ignores the role that we have in making the world around us. Um, and also goes to like, and I know like in no way did you mean this at all, Grace. This is just overanalyzing a very silly question that you asked about the cat that's in your world. Um, but it goes to like a very literalist reading of the Bible of like God made the exact things that we see today and evolution is not a thing at all. Uh, and when you think that way, then of course you're going to think the climate can't change, etc. so forth. Like that's that's the the issue that's at the heart of that is thinking that uh, we have no role in this when in fact we have a deeply important role in all of that. And don't hold your cats like babies. They don't like it. Yes. I I agree. So this is where I'm finding. I'm sorry for this as well, Grace. This is I'm being very silly, and I recognize this. Like this is where the, this conversation I think betrays like the weird way in which these two kinds of talking, these two kinds of discourse, like clash and interact. Right. Like on one hand, I think Joe, you're totally right. Like because human beings are some are 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 in in some circles, in many circles, are not you know kind of primed to understand ourselves as a part of like the web of nature or a part of the web of creation and therefore you know have uh, uh, a part to play if you will like like in the preserving and sustaining and, and the good work of creation and nature it leads to folks being like oh well climate change is impossible you know or or it leads to stuff like that but at the same time, like where I see the clash then is in if human beings are just a part of nature, just a part right. of creation, then where, how, in that way of thinking and talking, where is the uh, vitality to be able to say something like this course of human action is worse than this course? Because ultimately, you know, other animals or other creatures, you know, in nature, it would be kind of silly for us to be like, well, well, this pack of wolves is deciding to do the incorrect thing for wolves and, and has resulted in all of these things. And so, like, I just think that the discourses clash there. 
and it's why I, I ultimately, in my own like life, I, I, I don't favor a kind of a natural, you know, the sort of naturalizing discourse, mostly because I just don't think it gets us anywhere. And, and yeah. anybody can say, oh, well, if human beings are merely animals, like a lot of, a lot of liberal, a lot of liberals, whatever that means, like a lot of liberal, like, like Christians or, or theologically minded people or spiritual but not religious or, or whatever folks um, will sort of talk like that sometimes, right? Like they'll, they're, you know, we, we are part of this world. We're part of this earth, which means that we need to care for it. I'm like, no, it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't, one mean, that, it, it doesn't yeah. mean that at all. If we're just sort of part of this earth, then it means that um, extracting the raw materials of the earth to the point where we break things around us is just as natural as a, as a coronavirus entering into our bodies and breaking the world around us. Like, like, like the natural discourse doesn't get us to the moral discourse is all I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that a hundred percent. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, in, in the science and religion conversation, we talk so much about the creation stories um, and end up talking about, well, the creation story can have uh, it can have really nothing to say for us because we all know that there's not waters above the earth and waters below the earth and pillars holding them up, uh, and that the creation order is wrong. And that's entirely the wrong way to talk about it, right? Like the science and religion discourse should be thinking, how do we how do we deal with these different ways of talking about nature and what is natural and what is moral? Like that is all part and parcel of the conversation, and we don't often attack it that way. But then I guess if we did, we'd be bioethicists or something. That was a really long answer for a really silly question. Yeah. Uh, could have also asked about uh, cilantro. I could have asked about why mountain lions are cute. Uh, <laughs> I think we would have had the same conversation. Yeah. Either way. Um, <clears throat> people who listen to this pod uh, a lot know that the, the hosts, these two lovely, beautiful hosts... Um, like to just shit on themselves. They like to just... We, we poop everywhere. <laughs> like to just shit on themselves. Yeah, yeah. No, they oh hate themselves. God. They hate themselves. <laughs> they hate themselves, listeners. Um, we do. And so I'm going to force them to brag a bit. Uh, and uh, so is Beth, who wants to know, uh, what would you say is your biggest ministry accomplishment to date? Oh. Ministry achievement. I don't have one ready. Do you? <laughs> Do I? Oh gosh! You're um, doing the question wrong. <laughs> I get. Now we'll shuffle it over to Ethan. Uh, <laughs> Do I have a ministry accomplishment that I really think is great? Well, on my other podcast, Hookah Chats with Matt and Ethan, Matt uncomfortably tells me all the time how how much he thinks I've done really good work, and and I'm very grateful for that, Matt. Thanks for listening. Um, but uh, I, I think that I'm, um, I, I was able to change the mind of uh, a really prominent and important member of the, conversa- of the congregation that I had in Pennsylvania on LGBTQ inclusion. And so, and, and it was, it was a legitimate change of mind and heart on, on the subject. And, and we were able to get there because of sort of, not, not just a relationship that she and I formed, like a, a good positive one, but like we were able to get there because of like constant questions and answers and like 
and and you know i if you listen to the podcast for a while folks you know that i i very rarely if ever talked about lgbtq folks from the pulpit although if people were listening well they would know that they would know how i felt about it but i was constantly having the conversation one on one i was constantly having things where you know particularly around the 2019 general conference where we'd have public conversations at the church about what was going on and how i felt and legislation and things like that and it was really through those moments that that i i know that there was at least one person who who walked away from that going yep lgbtq folks need to be fully included in the united methodist church and she was in her 70s older she was ready for it so i feel good about that yeah that's pretty awesome uh, i've been listening back to older episodes and i uh, like i continue to think back about like there's there's a lot of you one you accomplished a lot in your years um you have to talk about yourself joe <laughs> i'm going to um but like yeah like i i find that that just that consistent presence like i don't know we talk about how people don't change their minds and how people are set in their ways and all this kind of stuff but i like people do it just takes a lot longer than you think it does and it, it takes more work and more dedication and and I, I think on a certain level it takes the spirit moving too but um and I'm pretty proud of the uh, the interfaith racial justice vigil that I did. Um, that I got got a lot of good feedback. Got a lot of people talking. Um, got a lot of people to connect racial justice work to faith work in a way that um, that the community had really been trying to do, but it was just really the right moment for it. Um, I honestly think my first funeral was. Uh, was a really, the, that whole interaction, um, I, I'm really proud of the way that I asked for help from mentors, but was also just like really present with um, like the patriarch of our church and our family as he passed. Um, and I, I think I did a great job with the funeral. I think I did a great job with the graveside, um, which is a weird thing to say, but like, I think that it was, uh, for being a completely green pastor uh, following a pastor who had been there for 15 years um, and being able to be like a good and faithful presence for this family like I'm really I'm really proud of that um, and, and I I feel weird because I it was such a short time there and it's hard to be like here's my big success because I don't know that I think if I had been there longer things that I had put into motion would have grown a lot more shown a lot more fruit um, but I did a community Christmas Eve service that was um, on the reservation and was there was there for the community and doing it in conjunction with um, with community members and got to was like doing a did this thing that we did at my internship church where you take all the pieces of the nativity scene and you hide it around the church we were in a community hall but you hide it around the area the worship area and the kids all go find all the pieces and you like tell the story and they bring the pieces up which is just really fun and interactive but then I was also able to like bring up pictures of like brown Middle Eastern Jesus and like show a lot of these kids who don't have porcelain white skin that like Jesus doesn't always look like the pictures that you've seen. Jesus actually like looked like this, like the image of God is in you. Um, and like to watch their faces and like see them see themselves in Jesus for what it felt like just looking at their, at their faces for the first time. Like that's a, 
that's something that I will hold with me for a while. It's just being able to like undo a little bit of that white Christian hegemony. That was great. Yeah. Good job, you two. Well done. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, this question is from Ian, a friend of the pod, asking these questions on this episode. Uh, he wants to know uh, which theologian would have the best pro wrestling catchphrase and what would the catchphrase be? Ethan, this question is, is genuinely just for I, you. I don't know. Um, what is catchphrase be? That's tough. I, uh, honestly, it would probably be a womanist theologian. Mm. Um, and, and her catchphrase would, would have to be, you know, something like about like oppression or something great like that. Like, I don't know. I, I really don't actually, that, that's a question that like, I don't think I can put the two together well in my brain because I don't think wrestlers make good theologians anyway and so like i think the theolot like if we take a theologian and then like try to put it in there like theologians don't tend to be very tough you right. know that's just not that's just not the way they're designed um i uh i think that some of like we're i don't terribly want to talk about basil the great because i don't like one of the questions regarding church fathers and drinks because i don't know how to answer that question either but like a lot of Basil Basil's sermons on social justice are pretty hardcore, and so like he could really he could really cut a pretty solid promo. So I'll go yeah. with that. Some of the some of the church fathers or some of the different theologians I'm thinking of could definitely cut a good promo, you know, and yeah. and and would would really draw people in. Um, but if you're asking which uh, pro wrestler had the best theological take, it was the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. Yes. <laughs> who, who every promo felt like he was preaching the gospel to you. That was good. Every man, woman, and child is the same American Dream that Dusty Rhodes had. Every one of them. <laughs> Get a dream, hold on to it, and reach for the sky. <laughs> I have been to the mountaintop. And we'll, this is a real promo he cut. I have been to the mountaintop, and it will take a hell of a man to knock me down again. <laughs> that's fair. That's good. That's good. Um, what is it? Gregory of Nyssa's argument against slavery is that, like, all all things belong to God, and if you enslave somebody, you're stealing from God. Yeah, yes. He, uh, he asks, uh, you know, how much is the image of God worth, like? What would you pay for the image of God? I feel like there's something in there that you could you could work with. Yeah. Well, since you brought up Basil the Great, Alex wants to know what drink would uh, he asked for each church father be, uh, and he says Irenaeus has lemonade vibes uh, for sure. Irenaeus is like. So uh, think of a church father and uh, come up. Uh, with a drink that represents them. And uh, to get things started, since I teased it in Twitter, uh, Basil uh, the Great, Alex, you wanted to know that as well, is very obviously um, uh, rail or well uh, whiskey double. Um, he liked being with people, was very tough, uh, took took out some uh, some... Uh, bureaucrats and took no shit. That's Basil the Great for you. And uh, that's also rail whiskey. Uh, I think that Augustine is clearly some type of pear cider. 
pear cider. That's good. That's good. That's good. Because he stole the pear. And now we can't have sex. And uh, pear cider. Now we terrible. can't. Now we can't talk about sex. Now we can't talk about. No, we can definitely still have it. <laughs> Augustine, Augustine's like, that's the problem. And I'm like, Augustine, relax. A non-alcoholic pear cider. That's Augustine. Mm. Um. Uh, Gregory of Nyssa would probably enjoy pretty nice whiskey. Like, like, like. I think a lot of them would probably enjoy things like that. Although I do think Gregory of Nyssa was did not drink anything like that was one of his things like the capadicians in general oh really yeah uh, it's connected to macarena their sister right because macarena was like you know it was all of well, it wasn't all about the, the purity stuff like that that would be a, a kind of a weird thing to, to put it but macarena was sort of their teacher that's how they understood their sister's relationship to them was macarena was like well, Gregory's always like, well, you, you think my work's good? I'm essentially just stealing it from Macarena. I sat, I sat with Macarena and she told me how Jesus works, you know. Um, but I could imagine Gregory of Nyssa sitting down and uh, enjoying, enjoying a nice whiskey. Yeah, we'll go with that. He also says that uh, John Chrysostom is clearly a Moscow mule. <laughs> That's true. Doing the absolute most for not not the absolute most reward to be honest. Um, is that a vodka pun? Oh, it is not the absolute. If you'd like to sponsor us, let me know. Um, we'll drink it while we do it. It's no big deal. <laughs> what was it? Are there are there other church fathers we should go through? Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure every theologian in the church from year one to eight hundred is technically a church father. Right. So we're not. We're done now. Like, like we're not going to keep going, right? I was like, what would Paul be? Neurotic. Yeah, he would. He would be drinking uh, pure corn mash whiskey, <laughs> hundred proof whiskey. I was gonna go with a vodka cranberry, but I think that's also good. Um, yeah, yeah. There's. I think the next time we do this, we'll have to do what drinks were each of the gospel writers. Mm. I feel like that could be. Uh, that's interesting. That's contained enough that we can manage it. So, Alex, I hope that we gave you stuff to think about. All right. Um, two serious ones. We're gonna. Uh, we're gonna start with start low. Uh, Grace Grace wants to know. How do I stay hopeful when everything seems so fucking bleak? I really, I left that at the end of the questions because I thought you would ask it last. Um, I don't know, we talked to, we've talked about this in the podcast. Of, uh, like, Ethan has talked about how, like, well, at least we have hope for Adrea. Like, let's have hope for the kids in the world. Because um, what, what are we doing if we don't do that? Um, I, so I, I have been paying attention to a lot of um, abolitionists and how they're interacting with the world right now. Um, and also like climate activists and they're like we kind we don't have the privilege of just checking out and being despondent and being hopeless because when we do that we abandon our um we have a, a temptation to abandon our duty to care for one another um and so like whatever way you things are hopeful for you like whatever thing it is that you need to keep you going find that thing and practice it like make it into a spiritual practice and a spiritual discipline i think it's different for everybody like i, I think that um i think hope's tricky i don't think there's a universal hope trigger for us yeah i agree I, i'll you mentioned this joe and i'll just reiterate it like i think there's a moral imperative to have hope for children 
and to present a hopeful world to children. Like, I can sink into nihilism as, you know, just like anybody else. Like, I, there's a very, a decent-sized nihilistic part of my personality. But I, I think I would, I think I would be a monster if I attempted to pass that on to Adrea. Yeah. Um, and I think this is one of those kind of odd things about, like, the way truth and hope are kind of connected, right? Like, on one hand, there's so many bad things happening, and that's the truth. Like, the truth is there's a lot of bad things happening, and our world is, is sort of fundamentally changed, not just socially, but through the, the bad things that are happening in, in our climate. And, you know, just there are things that, like, yeah, I mean, how things used to be is over. Like, yeah. you know, those aren't coming back. And, and so you don't want to lie to people. And you don't want to say, oh, don't worry, everything's going to be great. But, like, that's not really what hope is, right? Like, for hope, it, hope isn't just some sort of unbridled optimism. But, like, I think hope, at least for Christian folks, like, hope has something to do with believing in redemption, you know, yeah. and believing that sort of at the center of everything is, sometimes I'll say at the center of everything is a perfect saving love. Right. And and like I think it would be immoral to not pass something of that notion on to every kid we meet. Um even if even if the facts are pointing against it. I don't know. That I don't think that means I don't think that matters. You know, I think I think that we still need to present a world of hope at least to children. And I think we would call a person a monster if if they if they said no. Every kid I meet, I'm going to one day your, your parents will die. There's no there's no there's nothing. You know, like we would consider that person a monster. Yeah. I I think I think there's something really right about that. And there's there's always the balance too because it's I yeah, understanding hope as as the powerful thing it can be, rather than unbridled optimism. Uh, so as we were driving down here, Ian was playing me uh, his funeral play concert. All the songs that I want played for my funeral. Ian is the most extra and has like an hour-long list of songs that he wants played for his funeral. It's actually an hour and 48 minutes. Ian has a two-hour-long list of songs that he wants played for his funeral, and uh, it's beautiful, and it's one, it, it's a lot. Uh, it was, it's actually um, listening to it was one of the most religious experiences I've had recently, because it came to a point where um, it was a song about like heaven, and really about like the realization of like God's kingdom on. Heaven is a place on <laughs> That's what it was. It's exactly that song. But but I, I like I saw it, listened to it, and, and heard it with new eyes. That like when when the end of creation is achieved, we will be in this in this really beautiful place where there is no oppression, there is no climate disaster, there is none of the things that are the existential things that are dragging us down, and like the vision of like the fullness of of humanity and creation will will be there. Um, and like, I, I can have hope for that and I can have hope for the part that I have to play in, 
in that being achieved. Like, not that I'm going to bring that about, and not that the fullness of that is something that's going to happen in our lifetimes, but that, um, that, like, that is already where God is aimed. That is already where we are going. That is already, um, a part of, of the world that we are hoping for. And, yeah, I, like, I think, I think when we give that up, when we give up the hope that, like, liberation does come, redemption does come, salvation does come, um, I think we just we we stop being able to function and and we can't we just can't not listeners for those who are curious that song is uh it's hallelujah and it's uh from uh sean uh it's by sean kirchner uh it's a relatively new song um and if i am not mistaken the text is actually a charles wesley text yeah, and uh, just the end. the The song, the lyric that got her was, "Give joy or grief, give ease or pain, take life or friends away, but let me find them all again in that eternal day, and I'll sing hallelujah, and you'll sing hallelujah, and we'll all sing hallelujah when we arrive at home." Did that just get you though? Like, Listen, sorry. she's crying again. I'm not crying yet. Charles, man. Ask another question. <laughs> Charles is good. Charles is uh, great. Um, all right, last question for this section, and we'll uh, put some more in the mini-sode, and we might throw some uh, on Patreon as well. Um, Ian, don't say that. We're not going to. Well, you never know. Okay. Uh, last question from Patrick. You can add one book to the Bible and subtract one book from the Bible. What do you do? Add and subtract one book. Do we need like those chronicles? Like we can keep That's a good point. As a <laughs> as a chunk. That's just that's just efficiency. Uh what would we add to the Bible though? I feel like you've got to go it's not like a, an apocryphal text that you add in, because like those are those are there, those are accepted in various circles. That's right, fine. Right. You gotta go with like like um like a modern womanist text, I feel. Yeah, you, you wanna go with something that, at least I, I would want to go with something that um, uh, uh, both conforms to and challenges what's there. Just like all yeah. the other parts of the Bible, right? Like yes. That, yeah. that, and so I think a modern womanist text or like a James Baldwin piece or like, like something something that is one part poetic and, you know, one part uh, all these other things, right? That That, like I said, that would both challenge and conform to it yeah maybe add like a whole whole new book of psalms and just be very uh broad with your interpretation of what fits as, as a psalm but um is it similar 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 and what's the what's the name of the oh uh jesus from west texas what's but what's the, the song there are lots of there are, there it's an ep there are a number of songs on there um i don't understand why you can't just read my mind I don't know. The one that like everybody's like, thank God for that. Oh, thank God for that. Oh. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. Thank yeah, assemblers, thank God for that. I think should be in the Bible. Like, let's if we're just gonna add things in, like let's just have a text that is fully affirming of gay people, and we can just be done with that question. Yeah, yeah, that that, that would that would help. That's for sure. Yeah, I, I could agree with that. I could agree with that. I, I am partial to a lot of uh, a lot of like like 
like somebody like a James Baldwin. Yeah. Some something like that, like a like a short story or a poem or an essay that you know would really would really get at the heart of a lot of things. You know, not just not just contextually, like everything's contextual, which I understand. Yeah. But not just contextually, but something that could, you know, open open the Bible, open stuff that's already there in the Bible, but but clarify it in a different way and and open it for more eyes, right? Yeah. So it's not hidden under other muck. And I would get rid of Chronicles. Yeah. Yeah, that we don't really need. Is there anything in Chronicles that like we need? That isn't said anywhere else. I don't think yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. Is this anti-Semitism? <laughs> Oops. I'm I was... sorry. Nothing. I guess. <laughs> I. We can't possibly be wrong. I don't know. Like the third, third John. Like there's third not, John. Have we ever? Short. Have you ever done anything with third John? <laughs> I don't know. That Joh- that that third Johannine community or whatever. I didn't really pay very close attention. Sorry, Carla. Oh my God. But uh, but like that, you know, they'd probably be mad. All five of them. <laughs> That's true, and because they were going through schism. Actually, I ha- I have used the Johannine letters a lot as I've been talking about schism. You know, I w- but I would actually, in a very petty way, kick out proverbs. Like there's just there's never been anything from that. proverbs that I wanted. Yeah. Wisdom literature is kind of a, a tricky thing, I think. Like, yeah. I not that I'm an expert in any way on wisdom literature, but like I think wisdom literature you just miss so much because it's so contextual. Yeah. Like. Like, yes, it's supposed to be wisdom, you know, like, and, and isn't wisdom universal? And I go, yeah, sort of. But, like, the the Proverbs as a book is just, like, you know, it's impossible to apply the same sort of hermeneutics you apply to many other parts of the Bible to Proverbs. Yeah. You can't interpret Proverbs allegorically. If you do, what do you get? Nothing. You know, you can't, can't it. You can't look for Christ in Proverbs because it's pretty self-evidently yeah. what it is. Other than like Lady Wisdom, right? Like I yeah, the Lady Sophie, Wisdom passages are cool. Yeah, um, yeah. So I get rid of Proverbs except for the Lady Wisdom. The the seven the seven parts that where Lady Wisdom's there. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's fine. I would also clarify. I would get rid of all of the parts that don't conform to an imminent Orthodox Trinitarianism. There you go. It's what I call the reverse Jeffersonian Bible. <laughs> so Jefferson got rid of all the stuff that he thought was, was un, you know, it couldn't po- possibly happen in nature. I do the opposite. I get rid of all the moral teachings of Jesus and, and I'd only keep the parts that go, this could be the Trinity. <laughs> and, that, and that's it. That's all I would do. <laughs> we didn't even talk about the book of Joshua. No, no, it. you didn't. Um, my answer to this question has always been, uh, I'd add in letter from a Birmingham jail. Huh. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. yeah. Um, although, <clears throat> the more I think about it, I think we, there's, like, something that reflects the, from, from, uh, South America or, yeah. or Africa, something reflecting sure. the fact that, or Asia, uh, like, the, the shifting center of Christendom, um, away from the north. Um, and then, uh. I would not get rid of anything, uh, but I would get rid of Jude. Yeah. Or, or Peter. One of the Peters. Jude. That's what I yeah. always say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, <clears throat> listeners, thank you for uh, listening to another episode of What the Hell is a Pastor? It's been a great ride. Uh, over 200 episodes went to our third season. And see you next time. I am Ian, and we've got Ethan and Joe. And thanks a lot. Thank you.
What the Hell is a Pastor is a part of the Disruptive Disciples Podcast Network. Our theme song is written by Joe Schoenwolf, performed by Joe Schoenwolf, Ian Oriola, and Paul Oriola, and produced by Paul Oriola. Email us at wtheckisapastor at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash disruptive disciples, on Twitter at wthisapastor, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash wthiap, where you can get access to pillow talk, signed cards, episode suggestions, and so much more. Thanks for listening, and remember, always double check your default microphone. I'm just going to wait for that car to go by. Is it a car or is it an airplane? Helicopter? Oh, it's a car. It's a motorcycle, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> well, you, you were right in each one of them, anyway. Is it a car or is it an airplane? Helicopter? Motorcycle? Oh, my gosh. It's a boat! <laughs>